Well, again, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for those of you who are joining us online. Again, my name is Dan Thorson. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Calvary. I hope that you come back again uh, this weekend for uh, an Easter celebration. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I got to go to the Hewing Hotel downtown uh, for her birthday. Uh, we ditched the kids for a night, which was great. And while we were sitting on top um, of the building, uh, there's just this amazing view of Minneapolis um, from the top of, of the Hewing. And there was one building in particular that sort of stuck out to us. I have a picture of it here. And we noticed the, the little structure, circular structure on the top, and we started to wonder, what's it for? And why doesn't it go all the way around? Like, whose design idea was that? And so we started, you know, trying to come up with, you know, ideas for why it's there besides, I mean, maybe it's just aesthetics, you know, you can shine pretty lights on there. But is it like a wind thing or for ice accumulation? Is there a helipad up there? If anybody knows, come find me after the service and tell me. This has nothing to do with the message. I just really want to know. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe you've come across something like this. Maybe in a junk drawer or a closet at home, you've pulled something out and you're just unfamiliar with it. And you go, what does this do? What's this for? Well, I have a, a few just random objects, things that I found online that I want to see if any of you know uh, what they're for. So here we go. Here's the first one. Does anyone know what that is? It's for making meatballs. All of you Swedish folks out there can thank me later. All right, how about the next one? It's a flour duster for baking. Who knew? I didn't. This one. This is what uh, was used to be used to uh, put corks in wine bottles. Okay. And how about this last one? All right, the cross. I think that the cross... It's sometimes like that structure on top of that building. It's sometimes like those random items that we, that we find where we don't really know what it does. I mean, it's central. The cross is at the center of our Christian faith. Artists have been painting it for centuries. We wear it around our necks. People get it tattooed on their bodies. It is so familiar to us in our culture, and yet sometimes, I think we're actually pretty unfamiliar with its function. What does the cross do? Why did Jesus have to die? You know, in part, it was because the Romans thought that Jesus was leading an insurrection, an uprising against the Roman Empire. Well, why else? Why else did Jesus die? Well, in part, it was because the religious leaders, the Jewish elite, were threatened by this Jesus movement. And they heard his teaching on God's kingdom, and they found it blasphemous. But what does the cross do? You know, the cross really does demand a response from us. We can either reject it, or we can accept it. But I think that we, as we become more familiar 
with the cross and what it does. What we can't do is ignore it. And so for the rest of our time, I'm going to share a a few things that the cross does. And as we become more familiar with the cross, my prayer is that each one of us would respond in the way that God intends us to. So what does the cross do? First, the cross sets us free. Before Jesus' crucifixion, he's uh, brought to trial before the Jewish religious leaders as well as the Roman uh, political leaders. We read about it in Luke chapter 23. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as the one who is inciting the, rebel- the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for see, he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You know, we have this tendency when we hear uh, of, of stories, of tragedies, of horrific events of injustice, of imagining that we would be the heroes in those moments. You know, we, we think that oh, if, if I was there in Germany during the Holocaust, I wouldn't have stood up, or I would have stood up against the Nazi party. We think that we would have stood for what is right and true and godly. We like to think we're the heroes. I think that, you know, when we face the atrocities and the injustice of our own country's history with slavery, we think, well, I wouldn't have gone along with it. I would have stood up for what's right. But statistically, that's delusional thinking. We wouldn't have. You and I, if we were in those places, in those times, we would have gone along with the Nazi party. Those of us who are white would have gone along with slavery. Statistically, that's just true. We would have been the crowd chanting, crucify him. We would have been Barabbas. Romans 3, 11 through 12 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But we don't like thinking about ourselves this way. We're good people, right? We're decent. We're kind. We're considerate. Yeah, we're not perfect, but we're good. We're doing our best. We don't like to acknowledge our sin, our selfishness, but the cross confronts us with it. Jesus doesn't say that we do sin. He actually says that we're enslaved to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We're enslaved. We can't escape it. We can't avoid sin's consequences on our own. And again, 
we feel this urge to protest that. Again, we're, we're good people. We're not bad people. But have you ever tried not to sin? I mean, really tried hard. Like, try not to lie for a month, not even a little white lie. Try to go for a season without ever wanting your neighbor's stuff. Try to go for a while without ever lusting. You know, sometimes we don't realize how enslaved we are because we haven't really tried all that hard to be free. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Barabbas, he is a criminal. He is the insurrectionist. He was the murderer. He was deserving of death. And yet he was set free by Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus took the guilty man's place. Jesus, the one who had never sinned. And this is what he does for all of us. Colossians 2, 14 says, he canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus takes on the death that you and I deserve, and instead we get to receive the gift of eternal life. So what does the cross do? The cross sets us free. All we have to do is respond. Second, the cross reveals God. Luke 23, 32 through 49. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus' followers didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he was crucified. Those closest to him didn't believe he was the Son of God in this moment. But two people did. 
the criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and the Roman centurion. The cross, unexpectedly, revealed God to them. You know, Roman society in, in the first century was actually very similar to our own in a number of ways, including the fact that it was very diverse and pluralistic. There were many people from different religions and cultural backgrounds all living in the same cities with one another. And the religion of Rome affirmed many gods. And in fact, even as they discovered uh, gods that other cultures worshipped, they would just include them uh, in their overarching pantheon, it was called. Pluralism and universalism was just acceptable back then as it is in our own society. But Christianity, Judaism and Christianity was unique because they made an exclusive claim about who God was. And the Bible is clear that no matter how much we try to know God, no matter how we pursue to connect spiritually, that ultimately we are like blind people searching in the dark. That if we're truly to know God, if we're truly to understand and have confidence about who he is, God needs to reveal himself to us. And that's exactly what God did in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know God, if I want to know God, if any of us wants to know God more, he has made himself known. He has revealed himself. We just look to Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father by how he lived, how he treated other people, and especially how he died. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross reveals the heart of God. It reveals his character. It reveals who God is. And as we come to the cross, we see that God is a God of love. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of redemption. And he's a God that wants to be known by us. And like the centurion and like that criminal on the cross, we have all sorts of ideas about religion and spirituality and who God is. But the good news of the cross is that we don't need to wonder. The good news of the cross is that we aren't left searching on our own, relying on our own experience, but that God has revealed himself. And we respond with trust, trusting in Jesus, that beyond our wildest imaginations, 
and our deepest hopes that God is as good as he is revealed to be in Jesus. The cross sets us free. The cross reveals God. And finally, the cross gives us purpose. I read a passage uh, earlier from Colossians, and I just want us to look at it again, in particular, the, the second verse. It says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus, on the cross, is becoming king of heaven and earth. As they mockingly put that crown of thorns on his head and put the royal robe over his shoulders, they lead him away and raise him up on the cross. The Bible talks about that as the moment Jesus is enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. But of course, it's completely unexpected, absolutely paradoxical. Because Israel's Messiah, the new king of Israel, is not supposed to die. The king of Israel is not supposed to be defeated by the Romans. He's supposed to conquer the Romans. And yet, somehow, we learn that through the cross, Jesus becomes king. In Matthew 28, Jesus is meeting with his disciples after the resurrection, and he tells them that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And then he gives them purpose, and he gives us purpose to live as he lived, to overcome as he overcame. Ephesians 3, 10 through 11 says this, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you may ask, and I've asked this, that if Jesus is truly king, if he's reigning right now, if he has all authority in heaven and on earth, why aren't things better? Why haven't things improved all that much in 2,000 years? Why are our lives still full of pain and hardship? It's a fair question. It's one worth wrestling with, and I don't have a complete answer to it. But I think in part the reason why we ask that and struggle with it is because we don't fully understand God's power and God's wisdom. We want God to use power like we would, to overcome and defeat evil with unilateral authority, with decisive action. But the truth is, God's power and God's wisdom still work like they did on the cross. Death, sin, and evil are still defeated through surrender, sacrifice, and love. See, when we face struggles, when you and I go through temptation, when we're confronted by evil, whether it's in our own selves or in our relationships or when we're just looking out and seeing suffering in the world, God's power is still cross-shaped. 
And as Christ followers, we are given a purpose through the cross. We're invited to participate in God's kingdom to overcome sin and evil and temptation in the same way that Jesus did. And when we do that, that glorifies him. That makes Jesus known to the world. There's this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians that I think captures this paradoxical purpose that Jesus has given us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. You know, we, we often sing songs about victory, about God conquering and overcoming. We sing about breakthrough and living victoriously. And most of the time, we assume that that kind of victory will be won through power in the way that we're accustomed to it, that God will come down mightily, that he'll fight ferociously, that he will commandingly dominate anything that opposes us. But the cross contradicts that entire paradigm. God's power actually looks like weakness to us. His wisdom looks like foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. And yet somehow that's the very thing that defeats sin and evil. And I think when we actually look and apply that, we see that it's actually true. What have you overcome in your life? Maybe, maybe you've overcome addiction. Chances are, you had to be vulnerable. You had to surrender. You had to choose to be humble. You had to sacrifice in order to overcome. If you've ever repaired a broken marriage, I bet it required you to serve your spouse even when they didn't deserve it. I bet it required you in some ways to lay down your life for them, to forgive them. If you've ever reconciled with somebody in your life that at the time felt like an enemy, it probably meant that you had to give them grace, undeserved favor, and love. It required sacrifice. And that's how God's power and wisdom work. That's how we're called to live, to live cross-shaped lives, to overcome evil with good, to lay down our lives, to surrender, to be weak instead of strong, to love our enemies. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
The cross gives us new purpose in life, a divine purpose to demonstrate the power and wisdom and love of God as it's displayed on the cross. And he asks us just to come and take up our own. The cross sets us free. The cross reveals God to us. And the cross defines our purpose. So let me ask you, how is God wanting you to respond? Do you have that yearning to be free? Do you want that great exchange from the death that we deserve for Jesus' life that we don't deserve to have freedom? Then come to the cross because God wants to set you free. Do you want to know God? Have you been seeking after God, wondering what this spiritual part of ourselves is all about? Then respond to the cross by trusting that God has revealed himself there. God has made himself known. Do you want purpose? More meaning and significance in your life? Then come to the cross. Live as God intended us to live, to fight not against people, but against the spiritual rulers and authorities by putting the wisdom and power of the cross on display in our lives. Come to the cross, and together we can learn to pick up our own daily. God wants us to respond with surrender, to give him our trust, ultimately to give him our entire lives. 2 Corinthians 5 14 through 15 says this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're gonna pause for a moment now for a chance to respond to the cross. Time of silence, time to reflect, a time to pray. And then in a few minutes, um, we'll respond with some more music. So go ahead and respond to the cross now. <laughs> 